tonight on Arena. Adam Clayton and Margarita Capoc on their new TV documentary about Francis Bacon and David Keenan on his new album, Crude. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. In 2013, three studies of Lucy and Freud by Francis Bacon sold at Christie's in New York for $142.4 million, claiming the record for the highest auction price of work of art at that time. The fascination with this Irish-born artist has grown since his death in 1992. Francis Bacon, The Outsider, is a new documentary marking the 30th anniversary of Bacon's death and it is presented by U2's Adam Clayton. Clayton and Dr Margarita Capoc retrace Bacon's 1929 trip to Ireland, uncovering new insights into his complex relationship with the land of his birth and in the process, much new light is cast on this early period of Bacon's life thanks to recently discovered diaries kept by his friend Eric Alden, who accompanied him on that trip to Ireland. Delighted to be joined in studio this evening by Dr. Margarita Capoc and on the line by Adam Clayton. And let's get the um, let's get the Francis Bacon credentials out of the way <laughs> to, to start out with. Adam, you, you say pretty close to the top of the documentary that uh, you, you first came across uh, Francis Bacon's work. Was it as a teenager? Yeah, very much so as a teenager, and 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 I didn't, you know, I didn't really understand it at that point. But I, I loved the energy, and I suppose I loved the modernism of it. Um, and it's it's really over time that as I've, you know, been around Bacon more, and I've I've seen retrospectives, and I've seen more of the pictures, that I really understand how unique his eye was, and and his. His practice, you know, he he really developed something that I don't think anybody else has done. And of course, when it was first seen, it was extremely shocking um, to people. I mean, I, I, he he would have he would not have had a wide audience to begin with. Yeah, in fact, you make this comparison with it. You talk about it being almost on the edge of chaos, the work all the time, and and a comparison. You were a teenager at the time. This was punk rock in visual art terms. Very much so. I mean, you know, I'm, I suppose as a young person in, in, in 1976 growing up, there was a lot of anger and there was a lot of darkness in, in our world. I mean, we were from the suburbs in Dublin. Uh, there was an oil crisis. Um, there was a cost of living crisis. The future did not look, look very good. So Bacon's bleak outlook, which would have been shaped by you know, the, the the war years, and it would also have been shaped probably by what he experienced in Ireland growing up. It just, it connected with me. And very much as Adam says there, Margarita, this idea of what, what happened to Bacon in Ireland growing up is, is very important. And it's very much what you're exploring in this documentary. But your credentials when it comes to Francis Bacon, anybody who's been anywhere near the Hugh Lane Gallery will know uh, about your involvement in the, the movement of that wonderful Francis Bacon Gallery in its, in its entirety to the Hugh Lane Gallery. Was, as an art historian, was there always a huge interest in his work? How important is he? He is just a towering figure in terms of 20th century art and in term, he's very much an artist's artist. So 
across the board, most artists would have a great admiration for Francis Bacon. And yes, I've been working on Bacon for well over 20 years. I joined the Hulane in 1999 as project manager of the Francis Bacon Studio. That was a unique project where I oversaw a team who worked with me and we catalogued every single item in the studio, seven and a half thousand items over a period of two years. And it was just really, really exciting. So I have been passionate about Bacon ever since. But this documentary is obviously a new dimension because always with Bacon, that Irish aspect of his life and times was something that he downplayed and that nobody had really kind of fully researched thoroughly because of the fact that there wasn't a huge amount of information. But when these diaries came to light, as soon as I read them, I thought this is, you know, this is really important. We better explain what these diaries are because I suppose the received wisdom was Bacon left Ireland when he was 16 years. He was uh, uh, was 16 years of age. He was effectively fell out with the family, fell out in particular with his father, went off and never came back near the place. That's what most people would have thought up until now. And these diaries, what are the diaries? Yes, so these diaries came to light a couple of years ago in an auction house in London and they were written by this man, Eric Alden, who was um, a well-heeled gentleman who Bacon became friendly with when he was 19 years of age. And Alden, he was was a former, um, he worked for the the diplomatic service and he was very well-travelled. you know, upper class individual. And he was an assiduous diary keeper, which was a diarist, which is brilliant for us. So he started keeping a diary from the age of 11 and he kept one for the next 50 years. So he documented a holiday that he went on with Francis Bacon. And he also documented other activities, Mm. you know, that he was involved with, um, with Bacon. So really, he revealed this hugely important aspect to Bacon's Irish life. And that trip would have been in in 1929, at which which stage Bacon was 19. He was 19. doesn't fit in with the mythology of disappearing at 16 and never coming back. Not at all. So he was born in Dublin. He was born at 63 Lower Baggett Street in 1909. He spent the first 16 years of his life here. And the the story that he put out and told everybody was that he was kicked out of the house for trying on his mother's clothes. His father was a strict authoritarian. Mm. Um, there was a whole kind of thing about the the the, um, the the father having him beaten, etc., and that he had a sexual attraction to his father. So it was a totally different picture to the one uh, that we have from this um, the from these diaries that have now been revealed and that are really very mm. telling in terms of what they tell us about yeah. Bacon. And it really struck me, Adam, in the way that the uh, that the documentary is played out, it's almost like a kind of a detective game of trying to piece together where was he, what was he doing, who was he with, what is Alden saying that they were doing in Connemara in 1929? Um, I wondered to what extent uh, Margarita and the team kind of drip-fed you bits of information <laughs> and teased you along in this detective game that they play with us as as viewers. Well, I have to say um, this was absolutely driven by Margarita's rigorous research and it it is entirely new information um, that she has kind of ferreted out and, you know, went to find the cottage that they stayed in, went to to see whom they had kind of visited while they were in Connemara and really kind of built a picture of, of what Bacon's life was. And, of course, that picture 
now now that we have this information from the diaries, which is very in, intimate information, um, though obviously because of the life and times, not, mm. not sexual, um, but you can sort of read between the lines as the relationship grows. But you, you get this feeling of a, a family that are spending time together, that are enjoying being, being in the west of Ireland for a summer. Um, you get a little bit of an impression of, of the dark clouds of history. You know, this is, this is seven odd years um, after mm. the Civil War, um, and they're very much sort of anglicised. Um, so you, you get that sense that they pull together and that Bacon's father was indeed driving the young Bacon and his older friend around to things, and so was Mrs. Bacon. So it's, it's at odds with what Bacon told us. And, you know, an awful lot of Bacon's mythology is based on destroying work and holding court in places like the, the Colony Club in Soho. And, and, of course, we hear much more about his later sexual exploits which which shaped the picture of who he was and that background he was he was from a, a, a reasonably well off uh, anglo-irish family at in 1929 in ireland a very uncomfortable place and a very uncomfortable society to have been part of i would have thought do you think that feeds into the work could you already see that even before these diaries came to light and uh, and, and the various things that come out as the, as the documentary progresses adam well, I think he's he's known for his very very dark work, and and I think everybody has naturally assumed that was him wrestling with with his sexuality. But you know, he came, you know, he he got recognition in that post war era, which was a period of brutality, and and I would say the kind of brutality that we are seeing in Ukraine was obviously very evident from where he came from, and he would also have seen the brutality of of what was going on in Ireland at the time and being fearful that he might be on the receiving end of some of it. Um, I, I think also it has been documented, and Margarita would, would be a better authority on this, that, that he had an obsessiveness with, with animals and with meat, and he would go visit the butcher's shop um, locally. So he, he was fascinated by that aspect of life. Yeah, that corporeality of some of the, the, the carcasses that we see in, yes. in various paintings along the way of yeah. Bacon's, it's really notable, Margarita. It is. I mean, he was, I mean, for somebody who was allergic to animals, you know, like horses, he was a chronic, Bacon was a chronic asthmatic uh, all his life. And, uh, but yet, I mean, he was obsessed with, uh, he was obsessed with flesh, mm. uh, the animal flesh, the carcasses of animals, and he did seek them out in butcher shops and also in the studio. There are lots of reproductions of carcasses of of animals. And he often said that there was very little distinction between a human body and that of an animal carcass. So there was that blurring of of man and beast. yeah, and, and that's very much there in many of the in many of the paintings, and yeah. there's a very a very strong religious element in the paintings as well. Which, when you yeah. start putting an Irish, when you look at that through the, those early Irish years lens, you get you get a different view of them as well. Absolutely, I mean, he was he would have been Christian iconography is something that's very apparent in Bacon's work for somebody who was a professed atheist. I mean, we think of his most famous painting, mm-hmm. Three Studies for Figures, at the base of a crucifixion, not the crucifixion, yeah. but uh, so the certainly the one he he had an early work from 1933 called Crucifixion as well. So, and the idea of working in a triptych, I mean, three panels, that's something that is associated with religious work, but yet he's using it in a secular way. So 
that must have been um, an influence of what he witnessed in Ireland in terms of, you know, the burgeoning um, Catholic state. And as Adam says, I mean, the, the Bacons were other in terms of, I mean, they were mm. both his parents were British. Um, they moved over here. Their extended family moved over here as well. His his grandmother moved here to whom he was very close. And But they were very much outsiders. And that's why it's appropriate that the documentary is called The Outsider. Yeah. And I know, Adam, obviously it was a very different period in history and, and your own situation was rather, rather different from Bacon's uh, in terms of the, the history of the 1929 being where it was in relation to the Civil War. But you moved here as you were four, I think, just a four year old at the time. But your family, your father had been a British military man and you came from a somewhat similar background in, in that respect. Did you find identifying points with Bacon in that regard? Yeah, I mean, look, I'd be very wary of of, of, of making too many associations mm. in that sense. But yeah, I, I, I did arrive in Ireland at the age of four. I did come through a very similar prism, I guess, of, of, of where he would have come from. Um, and we, I, I suppose I would have been an outsider. I would have been sensitive to that as a younger man. Um, the island that we arrived in, in in 1964 was very different to this modern um, society that we have now, um, which is, you know, a, a leading light in, in Europe. Back then, we arrived and, and we didn't really know how to fit in. Uh, my father was was a, an airline pilot, so he worked for Aer Lingus and, and we settled in Malahide, which was a great community at the time and probably a good place to grow up. But they opted to send me to a boarding school environment and boarding schools. Um, boarding schools, I think, in any particular era can be a little bit harsh, but they were certainly harsh back then for me. And I was, you know, I was a sensitive child. I was a mm. sensitive boy. Um, I didn't like hanging out with the rugby players very much. I like to be hanging out with the artists and the people who drew. Um, and that was how I ended up in music, which ultimately, I guess, saved my life. Yeah, and I guess going to Mount Temple, there's a few fellas that you met there that maybe, <laughs> maybe changed the course of that particular narrative ever so slightly. Um, in, in, in that regard, you, you mentioned there you, you hung out with the fellas who drew. Was, was the interest in the visual arts always there, Adam? I think it was. And, you know, I, I, I sometimes say maybe I'd have ended up following that particular path or maybe I, I would just have been a van driver. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, I, I was I was interested in art class. It was, the you know, the art teachers were always interested in me as opposed to the math teachers who 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 didn't like me very much. So I, I felt I could be myself in, in those environments. And I was drawn to the other students who were also artists. But this idea, as as the documentary progresses, we get more and more into that very important period, nineteen twenty nine, that visit to Ireland, um, and and the, and his going to Bacon's going to Connemara. We get more and more a sense of the actually the Irishness of the beginnings of this man's work. Now, I'm quite happy to claim you totally and absolutely, despite your first four years not being in this country, as being totally <laughs> Irish. And um, we're not going to call you two anything other than an Irish band. Do, do you have a sense of Irishness in Francis Bacon's work? Well, I think I think it's definitely an aspect of what, what Marguerite uncovered, which is that the, the, the painting that we focus on seems to to have bear a resemblance to a tower that exists in Renville. So from that aspect, 
um, the, the very early days definitely have that. And of course, the, the interest in religion, whether it's whether it's kicking against it or whether it's embracing it, is, is yeah. a particularly Irish thing. And he would have been he would have been drenched in that, I would think. And funnily enough, his his friend Eric Alden, that writes the diaries, um, is in fact a Catholic and goes to mass and, and talks about it in the course of the diaries. Yeah, and of course, English Catholicism was a particular aspect of life in the, at that period as well, Margarita, that fed into lots of artistic expression. Yeah. But touching on that idea of the Irishness, and I don't want to give too much away about what's discovered in the documentary, but there is a painting. Uh, I suppose the myth of Bacon was invented in 1944 with his Opus One, yeah. as he would refer to it. It's um, isn't it? What what is the painting that we have? That's the the the, the three, three studies, three figures. studies, figures of a crucifixion. Yeah. But we have a painting, uh, and, and we get an, an examination of a painting from before that. Yeah. And and there's quite definite connections with Connemara. There's a picture of Renville Tower, and then we see a shot of this painting, and you go. What? Yeah. <laughs> of course it's the same thing, the same place. Yeah, I mean, that was a bit of research that, that that I did in terms of when, you know, looking, going through the diaries forensically and seeing where they went, what they saw. So when I saw Renville Tower and I and the link with this painting, um, because Eric refers to to Bacon painting specifically that he set up a studio mm. um, in know, that's the an West Brand. Yeah, yeah, that is an extraordinary moment that, yeah. that Eric Alden says this in the diary. He, yeah. he, he put yeah. the studio into this cottage we were yes. holidaying in. Yeah, and, and he's interrupted uh, with this painting, you know, and he comes out with a palette, the Gogarty's call, and he comes out to the, to the door. And 1929, the year that they were there, it's really significant in terms of Bacon's career because not only was he painting and drawing, he was also... Um, designing furniture and he wanted that's how he met Alden that he wanted to he met him on the ferry going to Paris he wanted to set up a, a shop for ultra modern furniture back in London so he's and Alden is really important because he actually purchases some of his examples and given Bacon's destructive nature we're very lucky that he did so he purchased rugs he pur- purchased um, painting as well, paintings as well and drawings so that's that's very important that they've been saved but yes I mean it's it's so it's the total antithesis of what you would think when you think of Connemara and Irish artists painting there. And then the next thing you have, I mean, everybody thinks of Paul Henry. And the next thing we have Francis Bacon painting in the West of Ireland. It's a, it's a hugely significant um, discovery. And the nature of a, a Bacon landscape is very interesting to look at. Very. Um, and that furniture thing is interesting as well, Margarita, in that he w- he went, he was going to Paris in and around the time when Eileen Gray was very active in Paris. Yeah. And yeah. Bacon doesn't talk too much about his early days as um, a borrower, shall I say, of no. the style of Eileen Gray. No, I think that's the thing. I mean, every artist is is um, a magpie in, in some way, but certainly with with Eileen Gray, he must have been. He must have gone to Jean Désert, the shop that she had in Paris. It was so distinctive, and his furniture is very, very close. You know, the tubular steel and the the mirrors, and uh, just the general in terms of the general design. Adam, um, I know that you had it was before lockdown that you had kind of you had it in your mind that you might want to do a few arts documentaries. How fortuitous was it that this one about bacon was the one that kind of came to fruition? Well, it's it's that thing, and it's probably a little bit similar to the beginnings of you too, where you know you try hard and hard to push in one particular direction, and then when you stop pushing, something comes along that you couldn't have dreamt up being as good as it was. So um, I was very happy to be included in this. 
Karen reached out to me and I, I met her and Margarita in the back of a pub in Dublin and we schemed a bit and we decided that we liked and trusted each other. And I, I said I would I would do it as long as if I if I was out of my depth or I didn't look like I knew what I was talking about, that they would tell me and stop filming immediately. And I have to say the crew were all very, very good. And they kept an eye on me and uh, made sure I got through it okay. Well, I, I was saying to Margarita before we came to her, what I really thought works and what I think works about the documentary is the fact that, you know, you are there, you have the genuine interest. It's clear that you have a passion about the work that you're talking about and asking about but you're lucky enough to have somebody like Margarita in the documentary with you to ask those questions of. Well, Margarita was very generous to, to share 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 the the space with me. I have to say, and yes, she she allowed me to go to the fore. And uh, whenever I was on shaky ground, she just comes right in and supplies the bit of relevant information. And it was a, it was a learning experience for me. Uh, in the filming, I think I, I grow in confidence and, you know, it's exciting for me to see that as, as well as, you know, what we're uncovering in the in the arts world as well. So I, I guess there's, there's, there's two or three little discoveries going on here. So what is the next project, Margarita, that you're going to, oh, <laughs> that you're going to bring to Adam? Yeah, a couple, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I do have a couple of things, a couple of ideas. Yeah, I mean, bacon is just the, the gift that keeps on giving. And likewise, it was a great pleasure working with Adam. I thought it was it was just a really enjoyable experience. He was uh, so committed and engaged in the subject. It was it was brilliant. Before we let you go, Adam, I have to uh, congratulate you on the uh, Kennedy Centre honours for you, you too. You received them last week from President Biden. Uh, obviously, the band have hit so many marks over the last 40 plus years. How, how, where does this one sit in the pantheon of U2's achievements for you? Um, I have to say it, it, it's, it was so unexpected and it, it's so humbling, you know, to be honoured by a foreign nation in that way. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll, we, we've always focused towards America, and I think Ireland looks west rather than east. So to recognise for our work that in, in many ways has been about America and about our relationship with America um, was, was amazing. And we stood in a room with some amazing people and it was, it was nice to be included. Well, Adam, it's been a real joy having you on the, on the programme this evening. Congratulations on the documentary. More to come, I hope. Well, let's see. Um, I don't know. I might get busy with the other job. Ah, that old thing. That might have to be dealt with. All right. Margarita, Margarita thanks so much for coming in Thank to us. Thank you, Sean. That's Dr. Margarita Kapok and Adam Clayton there. And Francis Bacon, The Outsider, is on RT1 television tomorrow evening, Thursday the 15th of December at 10.15pm and if you don't get it you'll get it on the RTE player afterwards but it is well worth the watch. Crude is Dundalk singer-songwriter's third album the Dundalk singer-songwriter in question being David Keenan. It's his third album in as many years he released his debut A Beginner's Guide to Bravery in 2020 and this new album represents a pared-back approach a return to a fairly acoustic sound and it is released on his own label that is on Barrick Street Records. And uh, I'm delighted to say that David Keenan joins us now on the line from Kilkenny. Uh, David, good good to have you with us this evening. It crude is out about a month now. I was looking at um, some of the reviews and in particular the four-star review 
in the Irish Times, which uh, refers, and you refer to this as a reconciliation with your own music. Had you fallen out with music? No, I hadn't fallen out, fallen out with it, Sean. I just think I, I, the, the sound got to a place where um, I felt a bit lonely in and amongst uh, a big group of people. And uh, I felt like maybe I was I was being wasted slightly, you know, and it was, it was getting further and further away from the the essence and the core of what I am, which is essentially a storyteller where lyrics lead the way. And uh, and uh, I wanted to get back to the core of that, get mm. back to me as, when I was 18, when I was hungry, I wasn't conscious of a, an audience and it was an outlet because I had to do it. And um, it's what I needed to do at, at this stage. I've done the records with the band. I, I've done the soundscape kind of records and I wanted to just get back down to the core and, and get down to something that was really unfiltered. And this felt like the right thing for me to do, you know. I guess that's what the name the name crude is a is a reference yeah. to that in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. Something without any varnish or no veneer, and it's 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 me in the room uh, telling the story. You know. Let's have a listen to to one of the uh, tracks on the record. I'm particularly interested in the in the title again here, raving towards Byzantium. Obviously, a nod towards William Butler Yeats here. Well, yeah, in, in a sense, um, it's a, it's a co-writing a duet with Junior Brother, a friend of mine, and we kind of came to Dublin about the same time, about five years ago. The song is something we started and never finished un, until June this year. But it's just it's just you're trying to bond and you're trying to say those those deeper things with somebody in and amongst the camaraderie and adventure of, of drink and, and a night out, you know. And uh, that's what it felt like during those early days in Dublin, and we were raving towards something greater than mm. the pair of us, you know. And why do you think it took so long to to get it together? Was it because it was a, 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 a I suppose a joint composition? It just we just got the first verse and we we left it and we we kind of weave in and out of each other's lives incrementally and uh, great respect for for Junior Brother. I think he's really unique and mm. uh, I just thought of the song this year and it had to it kind of deserved the place. It's a, it just represents our bond and I'm just glad that we kind of could land it the same day and get it recorded and, and get it down. All right, let's have a listen to to a bit of it. This is Raving Towards Byzantium from David Keenan's new album, Crude, and this uh, a, a performance and a composition along with Junior Brother. Is one to the other, but do not forsake what was passed from your system, me brother. Saint Aloysius is banging his head on the door. There we go, a little flavour of raving towards Byzantium. New track, our new from the new album of David Keenan. That new album called Crude. And David joining me. From Kilkenny this evening, I, I, just listening to that, David, and I mean this as a, as a compliment. There is a rawness to that. There's almost a feeling of you know busking on the street and sticking the microphone up in front of yourself and and recording it. That's the that's the kind mm. of rawness that you were going for. I'm guessing though. Yeah, absolutely. You know the feeling that everything could fall apart at at, at any moment, and there's an element of danger, and it's it's there's there, every take on the record is kind of inimitable. It couldn't be repeated. You know, and like I said. I'm always trying to 
avoid the obvious in, in what I do and uh, I've done the records the live record in the studio with the band and I did the the track record in the studio for, for my last record mm. and, and this is just a return to the roots of what I do in that tradition that storytelling tradition and uh, it's you, just been really freeing getting back to that place Yeah and, and the guitars as, as, are there two guitars in there and a whistle What what's the division of labour between yourself and Junior Brother? <laughs> He plays the whistle as well. Yeah, he he was carrying more of the 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 baggage than I was in that one. But he's he's got broader shoulders than me. So <laughs> yeah, because but it it does give that kind of a, as I as I say, it it strikes me that it's the type of song and certainly the type of album that's crying out for live performance. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that I that I I am desperate to bring on the road. And uh, as I said, it's more hands on. It's it's me playing. Uh, playing more of a, an active role in everything, and uh, I've just announced a tour for for twenty three um, Ireland and and Europe, uh, April and May next year, and there'll be more dates added. But uh, look, I'm a live musician musician by trade, you know. Mm. It's 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 the trade that I've been working on my whole life, and uh, you have to get out there in front of people. And this this record will allow me to get in, into different rooms, you know. That I've the music's been geared to the likes of the Olympia and these kind of. This record is back to basics and it's back with me and everything is stripped away and everything makes more sense because of that, you know. Given what you're talking about, David, in terms of storytelling and you've mentioned the idea that that's what you wanted to get back to in some ways, just you telling a story, but telling that story through song. How did the song start out? Is it always a lyric or a story that's in there and the music comes afterwards or what's the balance there? Well, it, it doesn't really discriminate in terms of what comes first, you know, the melody or, or the idea, but it all comes from a kind of a, a need or an urge to, you know, articulate something that I couldn't say in, in, in this conversation, you know, and it's this music rising, the song has allowed me to just go deeper and, and to face the uncomfortable things within myself and that I perceived in, in the world that I, I couldn't necessarily do in a conversation, Sean, you know, and uh, I think this record especially without any marzipan on it at all it's allowed me to really face those things intimacy and mm. uh, vulnerability and the sense of uh, and, a, and a sense of a healthy despair and being able to just process all that you know it is it is the coping mechanism everybody has something but for me the, the mainstay of, of life and living has been writing it all down and pouring it out into a song and, and I think on this record it's just there is no there is as I said there's there's nowhere to hide, you know. An extraordinary event, it has to be said. Well, to my mind, it's an extraordinary event that led to the writing of the song "God Is a Magpie." Yeah, yeah. Tell us what. Yeah, tell us what happened. Well, I was I was kind of living in Catalonia for a year, myself and my partner, and uh, we went back last about this time last year to kind of lick our wounds, and uh, I was actually given a couple of wishes by a woman. I bought. A Gansey in a shop there and uh, she tied a little wish around my wrist and then another one and I was going for a walk and it struck me that I was there because I was trying to heal the inner child and uh, and then I saw this big muck hill and I said well why not run up it and, and like a kid you know to get the inner child going again mm. and, and it ran, ran up this hill and I, I, I realised it was really high and I, I couldn't get down so I, I thought I'd just sit there for a moment and a magpie came and then I thought, well, whatever concept I have a God or a higher power or whatever presence, whatever you want to call it, it was in that moment when I was just present and I surrendered my fear, you know. And once you get fear out of the way, 
magic things can happen, you know, and uh, essentially that's what the song is about, you know. Yeah, and, and, and the fact that it was a magpie, a single magpie, had you any superstitions around that or did you really find, it sounds as if you felt it was some kind of special type of visitation you were getting. Yeah, well, it was. It was. I interpreted that way, you know. It's that's obviously it's a, it's personal to me, but uh, you know, it's one for sorrow to say, two for joy. But uh, it's just this little this living thing chose to land beside me at that moment, and uh, I felt it as a, as a, as a kind of an affirmation, you know, that I was okay to to be there with with a little boy inside of me to climb up on that muck hill away from all the notions of being an adult, mm. and and this little this little bird just landed beside me, kind of going. Yeah, you, you know, go with it. You yeah, know, I, go for it. Yeah, just listen to a, to a little bit of uh, God is a Magpie. thought I was only going to play a little section of that, David, but it, it really is a haunting type of tune. And when you, as I listened to it there in its entirety, you get, there's a sense that the, the vocal could exist just by itself, like a kind of Shanno song. And then that drone, yeah. on, that drone underneath it is almost like an illin pipe or something uh, added in afterwards. So that, that came to you as a, as a totally acapella piece, a totally unaccompanied piece. It did, yeah, it did. Just, just with the voice and uh, the the noise, the drone is just me playing with the with the volume knobs on an amplifier beside me. That was that was actually how that was captured. It all came together really in the studio like that, just spontaneous, and everything seemed to align with these songs, you know. Yeah, and it it gives me a sense that without getting too um, airy fairy about it, if that's not a pejorative term, but that there is a sense that this music is coming from elsewhere to you. Rather than you know, it's you, David, sitting down with nuts and bolts and working out what's next. Well, you know, it, it is easy to, to kind of get um, whimsical about it because it can be uncomfortable to talk about it in those terms. But essentially, it is kind of meditative when you're sitting down and you're lost mm. in a piece of music. You you can't access you know deeper parts of yourself. You're using frequency or tuning in, and that's how I perceive it. You know, like I said, I'm going deep down into the into the well. Of the self, and you're you're pulling up these things. You're pulling up yeah. these these emotions that you're trying to just convey, Sean, in a way that is useful. You know. Well, uh, yeah. certainly that that song has has a haunting nature to it that uh, will send me back to it more than once. Great to speak with you, David. I'm going to finish up with the. Uh, yeah, I know you have. Uh, you've announced some touring dates in April and May of next year, and you'll be playing live. Yeah. Uh, uh, where can people expect to see you? A couple before, a couple of days before Christmas. Uh, well, I've nothing actually coming up before Christmas. You might see me at the busk, but um, the, the first the first date starts in in April of next year in Kilkenny Roots and uh, Cork, Killarney, mm. um, Roisin Dove. They're all they'll all be up on my website yeah, and uh, some dates in Europe as well. Yeah, and I really appreciate that you having me on, Sean. Not Thank at you. all. Great to speak with you, David. DavidKeenan.com is the website that David's talking about. I'm going to finish with the the final track on the album then, which is called. Untitled and again kind of tells its own story as well. Great to speak with you this evening, David. Thanks, Sean. Happy Christmas. Take care. You too.
This is a line resulting in a coupling, the marriage of which is spoken of still in the skeleton mills where naked handed cigarettes to the mind. Oh, a little flavour there of the final track on David Keenan's new album. The album is called Crude and that final track simply untitled. Uh, it's out now on Barrick Street Records, David's own label, and you can find out details of David's upcoming tour dates and indeed of the album itself on davidkeenan.com. Well, the American Film Institute put together a list of the 50 greatest screen legends of the 20th century. 25 men and 25 women. They included the likes of Catherine Hepburn, Ingrid Bergman, Laura McCall, Marilyn Monroe. And in 25th position, just making the list, Ava Gardner, who we are remembering today. The actress from North Carolina was born 100 years ago this month. <coughs> oh, excuse me. And with me in studio to celebrate her life and work is Paul Whittington. I'm going to take a drink of water, Paul. And while I do that, <laughs> you do that. You're going to take us back to the beginnings of Ava Gardner. Take your time. Yeah, well, she, she, she she's a remarkable uh, character, Sean. In a, in ways, um, she's a little bit forgotten now. She um, she would herself have would never have said she was a great actress, and yet she was a great star. Um, the the whole story of her life, I mean, her private life as well as her professional life, and the manner in which she was discovered. And, but also who she was. She was actually very ahead of her time. She's a very liberated person. She kind of lived, she knew Hemingway. She lived like Hemingway. She lived like a man. She she drank, she smoked, she she slept with who she wanted to. She just was a very liberated character and that didn't play well, obviously, in the Hollywood of yeah. the 1940s and 50s. I'm glad to report that Norval Snorvis, I think, has resumed now oh, good, good, good. <laughs> in terms of the, You're looking the, better. the tickle in the throat. <laughs> okay, um, so what... what the, the, the woman that you described there clearly mm. was a woman, a very determined and self-made woman and a yeah. woman that knew her own mind. Yeah. What sent her off in the direction of acting and how did that happen? Complete chance. It was those very strange stories. She went to, um, she grew up, as we said, in North Carolina mm. and her, her parents were sharecroppers. And in fact, her father, to whom she was very close, died when she was 15. And I think that sort of changed her slightly. When she was 18, she went to New York to see her older sister. And her older sister, uh, Bappy, as they called her, her husband, Larry Tower, was a photographer and he decided to take a photo of Ava. She was very striking to mm. send to her mother back in Carolina. And he, he displayed it in a shop window and an MGM sort of flunky saw it and they called her in for a screen test. And what happened next, it, it so, sort of sounds apocryphal, but I think it's true. They sent a clip of a screen test to Hollywood and Louis B. Mayer sort of uh, t- telegraphed back. She can't sing, she can't talk, she can't act. She's terrific. <laughs> uh, and, and so they brought her to Hollywood and gave yeah. her a seven-year contract. And apparently that's true because she quoted that herself. And when she got there, she said herself, she was hopeless. She, 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 yeah. uh, she, she, could, she couldn't act, she couldn't do anything. And for a number of years, she just did bit parts, really. Yeah, was that the reminder of that ad? You remember there was an ad for years, can't sing, you can't sing, you look awful, you'll go far. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's probably based picking, on that. Picking yeah. up, picking up yeah. on that quote, obviously. Yeah. Um, it was for a young band. I can't remember what the product was, funnily enough, and that's maybe a good thing. <laughs> Let us move onwards then. Uh, never, she got a great start, even though she couldn't sing, talk or act and was terrific. But the the opening salvies, hmm, you would have thought, well, maybe we should have left it be. She didn't do well too well with her opening 
No, she arts. didn't. I mean, she was considered quite limited. Mm-hmm. Um, one, I, th- I think, mistake that they did, they, 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 they always did this in those big studios. They kind of I tried to make, you know, the square peg fit into the round hole. And she had this wonderful southern accent. Apparently they got rid of that, which would have a big, big impact on her, her later yeah. career. And she became very stiff, perhaps as a consequence, because she was always trying to talk properly. Uh, and she played hat check girls. She played, you know, malls and, and she mm. looked good, but tiny roles until the killers came along, uh, which, which was what changed her life, really. Right. Well, what what's the basic premise of the Killers, and what does she play in the midst uh, of the all Killers? This? Is a great film noir. Actually, it's it's still very admired. It's Robert Siedmak, and ba- it's based on a Hemingway story. Actually, and yeah. basically, Burt Lancaster, a young Burt Lancaster, played this boxer boxer who 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 he's killed at the start and by these two guys and they wonder why he doesn't resist and it's because he's been involved with the femme fatale Kizzy Collins who's played by Ava Cardler who is just a rotter Sean she uh, basically <laughs> he goes to jail he's so besotted with her he goes to jail for three years for and while while he's gone she, she leaves him for the, for this mob boss and then she steals some money off him so she's terrible but but she was kind of really uh, um, mesmerising in it very yeah. powerful she's only 24 she seemed older yeah and then the character who is killed is called the Swede and the, yeah. the clip that we're about to listen to features Ava Gardner speaking with the insurance investigator here <laughs> Jim Reardon and she tells him about her involvement with uh, these thugs called Colfax and Dum Dum who are supposedly involved in the murder of the Swede Mr Reardon I'd like you to believe something I hated my life only I wasn't strong enough to get away from it. All I could do was dream of some big payoff that would let me quit the whole racket. The Swede was my chance to make my dream come true. I could only be alone with him for a few hours. But Colfax was always there. I thought it was hopeless. And then suddenly my chance came. You mean the burning down of the halfway house? Colfax sent me to tell the others what had happened and that they were to meet at the farmers instead. I went to Blinky Franklin first and then to Dum Dum. I saved the suite till last. There we go. Ava Gardner there in the scene from The Killers with uh, Jim Reardon, the uh, insurance investigator there, played by Edmund O'Brien. Mike, Paul Whittington is with us in the studio this evening. Remember Ava Gardner, who was born 100 years ago this month? Even as we, I was listening to that, now I know you said to me the thing about yeah. the, the Southern accent, but yeah. you could hear the Southern accent kind of trying to get out yeah, there. And, and you, could, and you wish wonder, it would, really. Yeah, because yeah. she didn't need to be speaking no. in that kind of whatever neutral accent. No, and there's a kind of theory that she would have been less stiff. She tended to be cast as these very proper mm. women because of what she looked like. She was a very extraordinary looking person. Um, but she was badly cast time and time and time again. And there's really only two or three other films when she was properly cast. But The Killers was a breakthrough for her. The Killers was a breakthrough for her. She got a lot of roles. She became a big star. But nothing that really suited her until Mogambo really which 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 did suit her actually and and playing opposite Clark Gable that I mean mm. where where was he at in his career at this that point in time he was, was coming to, he was only about 7 years before his death he died quite young actually mm. but uh, um, he, I mean he he was still a big star and uh, she played this uh this sort of showgirl stranded in Africa and she's vying for his affections with Grace Kelly, the prim and proper Grace Kelly. And she she, she, she was very good in it, actually. The, the role sort of suited her. Right. So um, it's, it's, it's Ava versus Grace, really, is, it is, is, yeah. is what we're getting and here. And there can only be one winner, unfortunately. Yeah, I would have yeah. thought that. OK. Now, here they are having a chat on the veranda of a safari house in Kenya, the way you do uh, <laughs> in these matters. How do you do? My name is Mrs. Nordling. I'm Kelly, Eloise Kelly. Um... 
I hear your husband isn't feeling too well. Is he better? Oh, he's much, much better, thank you. Oh, that's good. Mr. Marswell says he's made a very quick recovery. Speaking of friend Marswell, I wonder where he is. Probably out lassoing some ferocious gazelle or something. Well, he took the captain back to the boat in a truck. Something about bringing back the animals, I believe. Oh, boy, I wish I'd had a truck last night. I haven't walked that far since some palpitating halfback tried to tell me he'd run out of gas. Uh, you've been here on some sort of safari? Well, I was going on one, or at least I, I thought I was. I came down to visit a old pal of mine, the Maharaja Bunganor. Do you mind? Uh, no. Um, but the big thoughtless cad stood me up. He stood you? Oh, oh yes, in Americanese that means that when I got here, he wasn't here. Oh. Oh, men can get you into all sorts of trouble, can't they? That was quite a shame. <laughs> There we go, Ava Gardner and Grace Kelly in the scene there from Agamba, almost you know indecipherable from each other. It's hard to tell them apart. They were both kind of forced into this speaking yeah. this lovely clipped accent, please. Yeah, I mean, well, Grace Kelly would have had you know yeah, a, 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 a Bosnian, but not like that. Yeah. Um, you're right, and uh, you, you feel like they're both being sort of pushed into yeah. corners. But they are both quite good in that film, actually. Yeah. Um, but by that stage, of course. Um, Ava, uh, who, who who went through the husbands like the male actors did, um, she was involved with uh, Frank Sinatra. He had sh- she'd gone out with Mickey Rooney first, which did not go well. Then with Artie Shaw, who was not very nice to her apparently, and then she met Frank. Frank left his wife. She was the public femme fatale and sort of was seen as a villain in in the kind of gossip columns because of that. And they were obviously a, they were a famously combustible. Couple, a couple, they were too similar to each other, but they would always, they never got over each other. Frank sang all those tort songs about her. They, it, it, it was a, a, a real romance, I think. But it, did that harm her career? Ultimately, was she seen in, in those terms as the femme fatale in real life? And did that feed into what she was doing on screen or did it work against it? Well, I think had she been cast um, as femme fatales more, it might have helped her career. She certainly yeah. helped his career because she helped him get the role in From Here to Eternity, which 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 changed yeah. his Screw around, um, but basically they they just killed each other for a couple of years, and she had in in this um, uh, these tapes that she made with this writer Peter Evans, the a biographer. She talked about him and Frank, or her and Frank, driving around this this town in the desert at night, shooting guns and stuff like. They were both crazy and not yeah. very good for each other, but they never got over each other. And he was kind to her later on as well. Yeah, she had a few nominations, okay, but um, didn't really get from any the gamble. Awards. She did. Yeah. Um, but actually, the best performance was a late performance, was a uh, relatively late because she 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 she, yeah. she stopped. Well, she didn't stop, but she was doing TV stuff by the eighties. Yeah. But in Night of the Iguana, she was she 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 what really she found. What you doing here? Because I'll finish with her clip. Yeah, well, I, I think a trick was missed with with Ava Gardner because I think she would have been a natural for Tennessee Williams yeah. parts. This was a Tennessee Williams play, and uh, she played she she played opposite Richard Burton, and she played this kind of um, uh, sort of hotel keeper in in. in in Mexico, this very weary person who kind of always knows what's happening next, and it, it, she she knew that she got that role right because she it it sort of she could feed her own life and her own disappointments into it, and she was very strong in the film. I yeah, think. Uh, so that this is the highlight you would say. Of her I think career. so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, let's finish with that. The night of Nagana, Eva Gardner with Deborah Kerr here. Scene takes place in an hotel kitchen over some fish that needs preparing. Deborah Kerr is playing a character called Hannah, gone out to get some money to pay for her and her grandfather's room which is run by Maxine, uh, played by Ava Gardner. And we'll hear them energetically chopping fish (laughs) as they chat here. 
Why not steam it, Mrs. Fork? No guests allowed in the kitchen. Mayn't I help? Please let me. I was born and bred in the fishing port of Nantucket, and I've cooked every kind of fish that swims in the sea, except whales, but they're mammals. I know what you're up to, honey. You want to make yourself useful, so I'll let you and old Graham stay on here free. Oh, I wouldn't do anything so obvious. Not with a woman of your practicality. No, my wanting to help in the kitchen. May I have the knife, please? Madrid. It's just that I've noticed a certain animosity towards Mr. Shannon among the uh, ladies in his party, particularly in the case of Miss Fellows. And I think with a soothing meal inside her, it might soothe her spirit. Miss Jogs, honey, you're a hustler. A fantastic, cool hustler. You're completely broke, huh? Yes, we are, completely. You say that like you're proud of it. I'm not proud of it or ashamed of it either. It just happens to be what's happened to us. Deborah Carr and Ava Gardner. And yes, Paul, you're right. They yeah, should have let her what speak. Could have been. Yeah, 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 the night of an Aguana proving that. Deborah, or not Deborah Carr, Ava Gardner, who would have been 100 years old this year, born 100 years ago this month, rather. Uh, competition, who, what instrument did Guy, or does Guy Barker play? He plays the trumpet and winning the the tickets to the RTE Concert Orchestra Guy Barker concert in January and the overnight stay at the five-star boutique Dillon Hotel. Deirdre Callaghan from Nina in County Tipperary. Congratulations to you. By the way, you can't sing, you can't act, you look awful. <laughs> the ad was for Kit Kats. Oh, well done. There you go. Amandine Passadevine and Leah Murphy researched. Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator. Ruth Cannington was on sound. And Polly Shields was researching this evening as well. Beg your pardon. Ruth Cannington was on sound this evening. And on production and Kit Kat prompts, Sinead Egan. I will talk to you tomorrow night at 7 o'clock once again here on RT Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.